lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my very special guest on the podcast this week is a lady named Donica Markicard. Donica is a, an author, she's a regenerative rancher and she's a wildlife tracker and her book, the book that she wrote, which is called Dawn Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild, when I listened to that book it was like, it was like you know, almost everything she said I'm like yes 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 that's the stuff and you know you guys know lately I've been a bit of a dive into why we don't function the way we should function in this world and a lot of it seems to be coming back to not um, not doing the things that we evolved to do and not living the way we evolved to live and this book of Donegas really goes into a lot of that stuff and so I was so excited to have her on the podcast and I th- I think the conversation that we had was even even better than I thought it was going to be and I had I had high hopes for this conversation so I hope you guys enjoy this uh, chat with Doniger as much as I did Doniger Markegaard welcome to the journey on podcast thank you thanks for having me Warwick Hey, this is this is going to be exciting. Oh, there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. And normally with the Journey on Podcast, we talk about people's journeys and how they got to where they are today. But you have written a book called Dawn Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild. And I have, you, you th- sent me a copy. Thank you so much. Um, I actually downloaded it on Audible and listened to it on Audible, which was great because you got to read it. And the book tells your story so well that I don't think we need to rehash the story here because I don't think we could retell it near as good as you did in the book. But there's a num- there's quite a bit of stuff in that book that I do want to talk about. But before we get to that, can you tell us what you uh, what you do these days, and then we'll go back to what you how you got to do and what you're doing these days. Yeah, well, I'm a regenerative rancher on the Northern California coast. Uh, Our family raises grass-fed beef, grass-fed lamb, pasture-raised pork, and pasture-raised chicken uh, spread out on different ranches from uh, Pescadero down in San Mateo County all the way up to Jenner in Sonoma County uh, on about 13,000 acres. And uh, we do that through mimicking nature to produce nutrient-dense food for thousands of families across the Bay Area. So a few listeners around the rest of the world, the Bay Area she refers to as the San Francisco Bay Area. So the, the places that Donica just talked about extend from south of San Francisco to, to uh, north of San Francisco. So regenerative farming, it, it kind of fascinates me a little bit. Because like we talked before we came on the podcast and, you know, you regular podcast listeners would know that I'm really interested in to in you know, like hunter-gatherer type stuff, like the way we used to, the way we used to live, and why we don't 
feel terribly happy with themselves with ourselves these days because of the way we are currently living and and our interactions with nature and what we do with it have a, are a big part of that. So tell tell me about tell me a bit more about regenerative agriculture. And I'm going to guess it has a lot to do with we're all connected. We are not separate. Yeah, absolutely. And. The term regenerative uh, came about many years ago from the agriculture community, really seeing that industrial agriculture and the way that food is produced uh, is not healthy for people. It's not healthy for the planet. And overall, it's been the cause of so much of our chronic disease and climate change and all of the things that we're seeing today. And so when I was a youth, not not going too much into my book because I do talk about food a lot and no, our we, connection we, to food. We can talk about your book. Okay, <laughs> I want to tell the whole story. It's story. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it is about that journey to uh, questioning, like what what are we putting in our bodies, and how are we how are we treating the earth as a result of what we're putting in our bodies? Because it is all connected. Uh, the choices that we make. And um, thinking that I didn't, you know, I didn't choose this way of eating and consuming and this consumerism, right? But that was what was available to me. So in order to really choose your own path, it it's a lot. It takes a lot of work, and it takes a journey to uh, find the path to a regenerative life and to find a path to taking care of the earth where we're producing more than what we are taking, because that's where we're at right now. We can't just sustain. Uh, we need to give back. We're in a crisis of topsoil loss, of uh, chemical overload, basically. Uh, you know, it's really difficult to find food even organic food that's free of chemicals and and soil that's free of chemicals and water that's free of chemicals. So we need to do a lot of work to remediate and to regenerate uh, the soil and to really take care of ourselves and, and the future generations. So regenerative agriculture is about... Uh, producing more life than every life you take. And animals are key to that. So when we talk about mimicking nature, uh, if you've spent a lot of time in an intact uh, ecological wilderness. So um, I spent seven summers tracking wolves in the Frank Church wilderness in Idaho, which is the largest tract of wilderness in the lower 48. And I've also spent time tracking wolves in Alaska. And when you're in those wilderness areas, uh, I, something shifts inside of you. When you sit and you immerse in your senses and you really pay attention to what is going on, there's incredible interactions. And it's all just flowing together in a way that's, it's like this amazing dance that's bringing more life. And so how do we as humans uh, relate to that? And how is our relationship with the wilderness? Um, and how do we 
sort of tend to that wild, but also every action that we take, how does that action create a ripple of positive uh, impact? And so regenerative agriculture is a incredible solution to many of the major issues that we're facing uh, during this time, because when you uh, essentially you can describe it as movement as a regenerative rancher, I move the animals like the wolves would move the, the herds of elk and in that movement brings life. So when we're moving the animals through these incredible grasslands and the area that we ranch in Northern California is the most biodiverse grassland in all of North America. So there's more life per square meter. And these grasslands, they evolved as grasslands. So all of those species within those grasslands depend on these grazing animals. So we don't have those large herds of elk anymore, but we can mimic that disturbance and that movement by moving our cattle through the landscape, by then the the grasses and the plants move, uh, they're trampled, uh, they're, the, the cattle leave their saliva, they leave their fertility. And as a result, the carbon is being drawn down from the atmosphere through that constant cycle of the plant, which is birth, growth, death, and decay. And all of those cycles are beautiful. And we can relate to all of that. And in a way where we are bringing more life with every one of those cycles of of nature. And so what regenerative agriculture looks like is you don't disturb the soil through tillage. So tillage is what uh, really breaks up that intact soil structure because there's so much life in the soil that's supporting life on earth. And so we use no-till agriculture. We integrate animals. uh, We work to create more diversity. Uh, so nature abhors a monoculture. You know, we, we don't just uh, till it, poison it, and plant it in corn and soy and hope for the best. Uh, you know, there's different uh, models that show that we really, at the current rate of agriculture uh, globally, we only have less than 60 harvests left. And so that's, that's our lifetime. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of scary to think about that. So, and I don't see the kind of shift that's really needed, um, to, to transition that, but it's possible. And we're seeing incredible results by using these different methods, which really come from indigenous people's wisdom, uh, and connection to nature and really figuring out what it means to be a human being on this planet in relationship with all life. I love how passionate you are. That's that was <laughs> that was awesome. There was something you said in the beginning of that, a phrase you used, you said something about living a regenerative life. So it's not just 
the agriculture that you're regenerative with, it's it's everything you everything you do, it sounded like. Yeah, we have the choice every day. <laughs> you know, as soon as we wake up, we have the choice to live a regenerative life or a degenerative life. And that can go across everything. It's from the way what we put into our bodies to how we move our bodies. Uh, and stagnancy brings death, basically, and movement brings life. So um, sort of the environmentalist approach, maybe when I, when I first started ranching, uh, was basically take humans off of the land, take cattle off of the land, and, you know, humans are destructive to nature, so, so don't interact with nature. And that's the best thing to do, Right. And then what they found was when you took the humans and you took the cattle off of these particular grasslands here that we work in is that the grasses would become stagnant and they would oxidize. And so they would actually release carbon into the atmosphere when there's not grazing cattle on these ranches. So um, basically the studies were showing that when you bring cattle on these grasslands, you have more diversity. You're saving these endangered species of birds and grasses. And we started working with a lot of scientists that are showing that um, it's, it's imperative for cattle to be managed correctly on these grasslands to save grassland birds <laughs> and to save certain species of wildflowers that um, are endemic to this area, are only found in this area. And without grazing, all of those um, sort of non-native uh, grasses would shade them out and then they would eventually disappear. So, uh, I think it's really important to understand that people aren't bad. Cattle aren't bad. <laughs> it's sort of the how it's, it's how we relate and why we relate and how we can work together with the scientists and with the ranchers and with the consumers to really save this beautiful life, this beautiful planet that we have. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned that, oh, cattle aren't bad. You know, this is the Journey on podcast. And part of your journey was that you were a dreadlocked hippie <laughs> type. <laughs> and, and it sounds like at one point in time when you first, maybe when you first met your husband, I'm not sure when it was, but at some point in time you went, you looked upon raising cattle as bad. Yeah. And you want, yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about, um, tell us about the mindset journey from one of those to the other one. Yeah. Well, it was during that time where I was in my early twenties and I knew everything. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretty much everything there was to know. And I, I have a 16 year old son and he knows everything. 
<laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm see, seeing myself in my uh, growing teenagers in during that phase in my life uh, and just kind of shake my head. But uh, so I viewed cattle as separate from sort of the ecology and not as a solution, but as a problem. And uh, I think a lot of that was very much perpetuated by false um, information. So like, for instance, uh, when I spent so much time in the wilderness in Idaho, um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of sheep and there was definitely cattle out there in the national forest. And, uh, you would hear about the wolves getting shot if they were, um, preying upon, uh, the, the livestock. And then you'd have these, um, people, these sort of environmentalists coming out from the city. It's kind of funny when I think about it now, but, uh, the, I think they were the defenders of wildlife. I think that was the group. And, uh, so they would have all these volunteers come out and set up their camps right next to the sheep camps at night. So, and they would make all kinds of noise and take different shifts to, um, scare away the wolves from, from the sheep. And I, I just thought that was so funny because, uh, you know, these people are going through all of this effort and, uh, you know, seeing that, oh, the, the sheep branches are bad and we're going to be out here and we're going to save the wolves. And, uh, I, you know, I think I'm sure they were very well meaning and hopefully they did prevent a wolf from getting shot. Uh, but I think there was so nobody was having those conversations. Um, there wasn't people coming to the table and really communicating with each other in a productive solution based way. And over my time being a rancher, I've seen that happen, which is really cool. I've seen some really amazing um, collaborations with different stakeholders that are producing a solutions-based approach to agriculture and wildlife. But back then I didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> I saw that it was like an us versus them kind of thing. And uh, then you hear about, Oh, overgrazing and I drive around in places in Wyoming or Montana, and I'd see cattle out uh, where, you know, the, the grass looked like a golf course. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's bad. Overgrazing is bad. But I didn't really understand. I didn't sit across the table from a rancher and really hear about what they were doing and and sort of the constraints that they may have had. Um, I, I'd never talked to a rancher in my life, um, never knew a rancher. I grew up in a very rural area in Washington, but it was, it was farmland and, uh, for it and logging. So primarily logging and, uh, vegetable farming. So maybe there was a few small ranches here and there, but I didn't know them personally. And, but what I didn't realize is that uh, 
the cattle were playing an important role. And I didn't realize that until in uh, I went, I, I was a high school dropout, but then I went back to college uh, to study permaculture and uh, sustainable living. And that's when I came across Alan Savory and holistic management. And it was like, whoa, he's a tracker. Whoa, he's worked with uh, indigenous uh, hunter-gatherer trackers in, in Africa. And I was immediately just enthralled with everything he had to say. I absorbed all of his books. Uh, I took his courses and I applied that to my own businesses that I was developing um, uh, when I was in college, and and I just I, I just resonated so much with that with, with his story of being that environmentalist and making these decisions that he would later regret because he didn't sit across the table from the ranchers. And he didn't understand that the predator prey relationship was so key in regenerating life. And he came to create this movement and this philosophy that so that impacted so many of us and has really shifted the landscape of, of ranching. Uh, so, you know, it's amazing people like that, that, uh, create the sparks and, and, you know, everybody has their flaws, but I look at someone like that and the impact that they've had and the ideas they've sparked in other people. I don't look at that person. I look at the impact that they've had and the shift that they've made because of that spark that they created that spark to become alive in me and to question things. And, um, so, so yeah, that was my journey to realizing that cattle were not, not so bad. And then through synchronicity, I stumbled across a cattle rancher and ended up marrying him. <laughs> you know, I think people like you are the game changers, the people who have had one very staunch view of things and then you manage to grow through that and you get another view. So you, you've, seen, you've seen a subject from both, complete both sides of it. And so I think you have a, you know, you have a broader view of the, the whole thing. So with the regenerative agriculture, the cattle, are they mimicking herds of elk? What, what, used, to, what used to serve the function of the cattle do now? Was it herds of elk? Yeah, so there was large herds of elk, like some of the accounts were that there was herds as big as 2,000 um, in this San Francisco Bay Area. And there was also uh, large herds of pronghorn. Uh, so those animals grazed these grasslands and they were moved by predators. I mean, we had we had grizzly bears here, so they could never sort of loaf around and, and be be lazy in the riparian areas. They constantly had to be aware and bunch up uh, for protection and their behavior shifted because they were hunted. Is it a bit like the, um, the thing about, uh, about how reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone changed the course of the river? 
you know, yeah, absolutely. as far as everything being connected. Yeah. So that phenomenon is called the trophic cascade. So basically when you introduce a predator, um, which, you know, that predator was, was there at one point and maybe it would, I, I would say that it would probably would have naturally reintroduced because that's what we're seeing right now. I mean, we're seeing wolves come back to California without any reintroductory efforts. So um, when you, when that animal comes into the landscape, then that prompts those elk to, instead of just hanging out where that lush feed is right in the river beds to be moving up into the mountains more, um, so grazing those uh, meadows, uh, keeping them open. And uh, also, so, so what happens then is that the songbirds come back, the beavers come back, because then you have healthier riparian uh, creek and river riverbeds, and uh, there's more biodiversity. And so it, it's about looking at this ecology as animals are integral. Animals are integral to an intact ecological system. And so if we're going to mimic our agriculture to match that ecological system, then animals are integral. Uh, you know, you hear stories of how, how many birds there were, um, like ban uh, bantail pigeons here in the West or passenger pigeons in the East that would uh, fly in such great numbers, they would darken the sky. And what do all of those animals or those, you know, imagine a, a herd, you know, right, right outside your front door of 2000 elk, like what, what do they leave behind? They leave a lot of poop, <laughs> right? They leave that fertility. And so we all know what happens when you try to grow a tomato plant in non-fertile soil and you don't feed it and you don't amend your soil and you don't give it the right nutrition, like you get a really crappy tasting tomato or you don't get a tomato at all. So uh, all of that fertility is coming from those animals. And if you don't have it from the animals, then you're extracting it from, uh, from somewhere that is, uh, and, or you are dependent on nitrogen fertilizer, which then uh, pollutes the rivers. So it's like this consistent cycle of death. <laughs> um, when you remove the animals, when you bring back the animals, it's a, a cycle of, of life. Tell us about your, uh, reading your book, it was interesting about what you do with your cattle. So you have a flock of free range chickens. Mm -hmm. And as you move the cattle, then you move the chickens and then they, they scratch all the poop and put it back in the soil. Is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And wherever we have chickens, I mean, the the grasses are incredible. Uh, the sugar content uh, in them, the bricks levels are just, just amazingly nutritious. Um, so we graze our areas where we have the chickens. We raise uh, 800 chickens. Uh, every, every five weeks, we get a new batch of 800 chickens. So uh, at any one point, we could have, you know, several, you know, over a 1000 chickens out in, in the pasture. 
And uh, so the chickens then are moved every day. So I think there's a theme here. We're, we're moving, right? No, we're, we're, we're moving away from stagnation and towards, towards movement, which equals life. And so those chickens are moved every day and they then pick through the, um, the cow pies and they spread out that fertility. They sort of debug the landscape and they leave their own fertility. So if you were to leave them in one place, um, like for instance, a confinement house or with cattle, a feedlot, what you create is pollution, uh, and an overload of that nitrogen. So, but if you move them across these grasslands, you're creating fertility and soil building and carbon sequestration and more life in the form of microbes and uh, earthworms. And so how do we, um, how do we, sort of mimic those passenger pigeons uh, or the bantail pigeons. It's like, you know, humans like to eat chicken, like it's beef, chicken, and pork <laughs> pretty much is what, uh, at least here in the U.S., consumers are are looking for. So uh, we can raise chickens and it can actually be a benefit to the land. And the same with cattle. They can actually benefit and be a climate friendly and climate solution. Okay, that's I love that stuff. Um, let's get away from the the regenerative agriculture and get more into the human side of the the thing. So, in your book, can I? There's a, a part in your book I want to really dive into because I think you had a a start in life that most people don't have. And most people should. I'm going to read a little bit from your book here. This is the start of Chapter 4, Awareness. Wilderness Awareness School, or WAS, as we called it, was designed for kids who do not fit in with the average teenager. It was for outcasts of the contemporary school system. By that point, I certainly fit that description. I'd retained my style from the road, my new fat dreadlocks on my head, secondhand clothing, and hair on my legs. My classmates at this new school ranged from high school dropouts to highly motivated unschoolers that had an intense drive to learn every plant, animal and tracking and survival skill, pushing themselves to their limits in extreme conditions with the elements of nature, within the elements of nature, sorry. We formed the first cohort of a maverick pack of teenagers, each as individual and strong-willed as the next, but brought together by one common thread, nature. The curriculum was a grand experiment to take kids raised with modern amenities and immerse them in the wilderness, mentor them by asking a lot of questions to invoke passions and to teach them self-awareness and leadership. At WAS, students learn to survive in the wilderness, how to extract medicine and food from wild plants, how to track animals and how to understand the language of nature. We were allowed to be free from authority and commands and the reason most the reason most of us stayed for years. We worked things out as they came up. For most days, we wandered in the forest with no destination or agenda. When we arrived at a spot that felt right in the forest, we gathered wood. Even on the wettest days, most days in Western Washington, we all knew where to find the fine, dry twigs hanging dead under the boughs of a hemlock, cedar or a fir tree. We peeled the soft bark with a red cedar and broke it apart to form a nest, just like the squirrels do to line their nests. We worked together to spin a hand drill on a flat board to form a coal 
and then we moved the coal into our nest, which would go up in flames as we softly blew on the ember. Wow. <laughs> so tell us all about Wilderness Awareness School. You know, oh, sorry, before I, I I'm going to tell you to tell us about that, I'm going to interrupt you. You know, these days people spend a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of effort doing things to try to reconnect with themselves, whether it's retreats or meditation or all, all, sorts of, all sorts of things. And it sounds like this Wilderness Awareness School was just a, an immersion into that. So I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just you reading that, I brought up so many, I, I was right there. <laughs> I was right there with uh, that group, uh, you know, struggling with all of the, you know, wet, dripping, moss covered wood. And oh my gosh, we had so much fun. It was what a, what an experience. And we were having so much fun that sometimes I just, I just didn't want to go home. <laughs> we just stayed out and we built forts and, and, uh, huddled around the fire to stay warm at night. And, uh, you know, and then we'd jump in the freezing cold water in the morning, like challenging each other and pushing each other in. And, uh, we were just allowed to be fully fully alive and fully immersed and so much so many of us had never had never been allowed that before you know with the exception of you know when sort of when it was acceptable when you were like you know a 5 year old running around and and getting dirty and uh so i think that that experience right there uh it, it just it just galvanized everything in my life of what's what's truly important and how do we how do we live this life of that that connection and and that awareness and it's a challenge you know it's a challenge to uh, to go back to that especially when there's so much pressure of raising a family and paying bills and sort of achieving something in life. And there's so much, so much busyness that it, it, it's, it's like you said, people seek out these retreats and these meditations because like, there's just so much pressure and for what, like, what is that? What is, really important in life to have some heading or just to be in the treadmill of work harder, get more money to get more things. And, uh, I just remember, you know, there's, there's things as, as a parent and, and I know you're, you're a parent and, uh, there's things in, in your childhood that stick with you that are like, okay, that's something that really impacted, my life and shaped who I am. And for me, it was that nature connection and horses. <laughs> so I would be happy living in a tent as long as I could provide that 
for my kids of that nature connection and that connection with a horse. And um, I, I was able to do that. And now as my kids are getting older and they're starting to kind of leave the nest, I know that they'll have that to go back to. They'll have that uh, they they were immersed in nature from a very young age and they've learned the skills. They know how to survive in the wilderness. They can walk out and have the confidence that they could go, you know, start, start a fire, gather, gather wood, uh, boil water and uh, build a shelter. And I think for kids, especially, especially girls, I think it's really, really important for them to have that, have that confidence. And I'm seeing it with my, my daughter. She's, um, she's 14, almost 15. And, uh, she, last year she went through a wilderness passage where they go out alone and they need to start a fire and sit by the fire all night. And the idea is that you don't, you, you don't let the fire go out. Right. So you, you have to be alone tending that fire all night. And she, you know, she had an incredible experience, but also didn't quite feel complete. Um, she ended up falling asleep and rolling into the fire <laughs> and singeing a lot of her hair off, which I was like, Oh, I can relate. That's happened to me plenty of times when I was your age. Um, you know, somebody built up the fire, you know, too big and then it burnt your cattail sleeping mat or, uh, you know, put, put your shelter on, on fire, which back, back then, um, things weren't as dry as they are now and in Washington. So we didn't have as, as, as big of a risk of starting a forest fire. Um, but now she wants to, it's like something that she's thinking about all year. Like, okay, I, I've got to do that again. I've got to go back. And because she doesn't feel complete. And so I've been working to support her and she's going to be going out again in a couple of weeks to do another wilderness passage because it's, it's something that, that she really wants to accomplish in life. And I've seen her transition to being a more strong, confident, independent, uh, being really in herself and in her body, which, uh, for, for teenage girls, it's, 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 it's difficult. You know, there's, there's a lot of emotions and a lot of pressures from media and from the outside. And, um, it's really neat for me to see that in my daughters now and remember my journey <laughs> to having that sort of inner inner strength. And I think, you know, there's there's one thing that um, that stays with us our entire lives, and that's that connection to ourselves and really having that inner peace and that knowing of who we are, who we are in this world. And that's always shifting, you know, that that's okay. It's evolving and shifting. And, uh, but being able to work through those difficult times and having the tools to reconnect with the source and, that's not another person <laughs> that's right. connecting to, right? Like you can't get that from somebody else. You, you can't, you know, that just 
creates codependency or bad relationships? And how do you connect to that source? And everybody has their own way of connecting to the source. And, uh, but that's so important to be able to know that you can go directly to nature or directly to a horse. And that's going to be a direct reflection of where you're at right now in this present moment. I mean, horses are so amazing with that feedback. (laughs) And the way I look at it is that we all have intuition, right? We were all at one point, our ancestors were hunter gatherers and they were able to go out and follow an animal and hunt and not just survive, but thrive and have this intuition of how to tend to the wild. The, um, the, the California Indians in this area, um, like the Ramachusha Ohlone or the Kashaya Pomo, they tended, I mean, you know, there's, there's some amazing accounts and stories of how every action was so intentional. Um, the way that they burnt the grasslands to produce more food for the elk, their food source. They were tending to the wild because their survival depended on it. And that came through both um, oral traditions and also intuition, right? We all have, you know, we've all had experiences where we've had a, a gut feeling so imagine living in that intuition all the time. And that's that's where a horse is living, right? They're living in that intuition. And, and we get so busy in our head that we're not living at full capacity. We're, and if you study neuroscience or brain development, you, you understand that there's so much more that we could be experiencing and that the hunter gatherer experienced on a daily basis. And we're missing out (laughs) basically. It's like, here we think we're so um, modern and, you know, we've got technology and we're so advanced and evolved, but really I see it's gone the opposite way because we're using less of our brain and we're connected to let we're dis, disconnected <laughs> from from that source and and from that intuition. So I feel like that's really what that passage of being out there with that group, being alone in the wilderness, being alone with my horse, it developed that intuition and that knowledge that and that knowing, I not really knowledge but just knowing that at any point I can connect to that source. In the, in the book, I think very early on, there was a mention that you had a visit from a Maori elder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is he the one that suggested you go to the Wilderness Awareness School? What was the story there? Because it's, I was, we were talking before we got on the podcast here about a podcast guest I had a little while ago named Emily Kaysdotter from Sweden. So you regular listeners would have heard that one. And 
how mind blowing that was. And she and she had uh, Maoris come to her in her dreams and said that she had to go to New Zealand and had all sorts of crazy adventures there. But I thought it was interesting. There's a Maori that you met in Washington State. What was he doing there, and what did he tell you? Yeah, well, you know, the the Wilderness Awareness School was sort of like a, um, I don't know, maybe one of those power spots on on the planet. There was this uh, uh, lake and the ground just, it just, uh, you know, when you go to area, certain areas like in, in the wilderness or there's certain places on these grasslands where, you know, you find out later that those were really like they were sacred spots or village sites and, um and you just you kind of feel like this tingling through the bottom of your feet like you know or or you kind of like almost back away out of respect that maybe you shouldn't be here um so that you know wilderness awareness school like drew drew people in and um a lot of it was just it was a lot of synchronicity and uh because basically it was a great experiment of how to take outcasts and mentor them in the way uh, indigenous kids were mentored. So by the time an indigenous youth was a kindergartner, they knew everything that they could eat, everything that could kill them, all of the, you know, all of the plants, all of the, the animals, all of the tracks, all of the trees, you know, how to survive. So it's like, we've been robbed of that <laughs> in our um, conventional schooling. And so how, so this was sort of the great experiment of, of what do you do when you, when you take kids that were raised in a modern way and immerse them in the wilderness and mentor them um, the way indigenous youth were mentored. And um, so it it also drew in um, holy men, holy women. Uh, We would engage in with the, the different um, local uh, local tribes and we you know, through learning basket making. And it was like, they were like, wow, kids that actually want to learn this stuff. (laughs) And, you know, it can actually go and help me harvest some of these plant materials that I need for my, for my craft. And uh, Makiruka, the Maori elder, um, I believe he, and, and so, and then there was also indigenous people that would come and, and they were sort of, they were on they were told by the great spirit that they needed to share something with the world. So wilderness awareness school was a prime audience for that message. And so they would come and they would do workshops. They would leave retreats, um, sweat lodge ceremonies. And so, um, Makiruka was, was one of them. And I think he was doing some workshops during the time. And, uh, my, my mom had invited, uh, the, the people that were hosting him over for dinner and he came and it it was like, as soon as I saw him, all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and he looked me straight in the eye 
Like I'd never met this guy. I mean, he walked, he, he kind of got out of the car with his jade cane. He, he had a little difficulty walking at that point. And uh, he looked at me and said, you're headed for danger, you know, right to the point, <laughs> no small talk. <laughs> like, you know, that's what I love about, you know, it's like in California, people aren't very direct, like, come on, just be direct. Just tell me, right. <laughs> Don't beat around the bush. So, uh, yeah, he said, you're, you're headed for danger. And, uh, I was like, what, you know, and that was when I was in my very much, I, I know everything and I'm on my path and I'm a teenage rebel and this is what I'm doing. And you can't, nobody can tell me what to do. And, but I just like froze in my tracks. Uh, and he said that, uh, you need to connect with your heart and find that path back to your heart, like back to yourself. And the way you're going to do this is through connecting directly with nature. And only then will you be able to make that head heart connection. So it doesn't start in the head (laughs) and then move to the heart. It starts in the heart with that intuition and that connection. And only from there is when you apply that purpose or that vision. Um, and which when you've been around, you know, indigenous healers, uh, they're just living that all the time. And I just admire that so much. Like, and and there's very few people that are actually doing that. And um, so that's what led me to the Wilderness Awareness School and completely shifted my life. <laughs> and um so thankful for, for him. He's passed away now, but, um, you know, he would tell stories about his, how his grandmother would send him out blindfolded swimming. And he would have these incredible interactions with, a life in the sea. And he would have these, like, talked about just these full sensory immersion experiences. And so did a lot of blindfolded stuff, like taking that sight away and to develop those, those other senses. Tell us about some of the things at the, you know, well, let me back up. There's a book I read a number of years. I read a lot of books, but this one was about, uh, well, lots of books I've read about um, shamanism and that sort of thing. But one of the books I read was was it gave you some exercises to do, and it sounds like you've done a lot of this stuff. Um, but it was go out and sit in wilderness for 20 minutes and don't move your head, just keep your eyes still and just be aware of what comes in your peripheral vision for 20 minutes. And then another one of the exercises was do the same thing, but go and sit and close your eyes and listen to all the things you can hear for about 20 minutes. And another one, and this is the intuition one, was go and sit with your eyes closed and see what you can feel with your body. And these are just exercises. But you, you reading your book, you lived these things. And I just want to, you know, I, I think people... You know, you were talking about your head and your heart and, and our society puts us all in our head and 
that wilderness awareness school really gets you into your body. Tell us more about some of the things they had you guys do there. Yeah, yeah. So that um, sitting out in nature alone was sort of the foundation of of what we did. And um, it was called a, a secret spot. So we each had our secret spot that we would go to and we'd go to the same spot every day. And uh, we would sit there. Most of the sits were probably about an hour or maybe even longer. So it would sort of be the first thing you did. Um, You know, maybe you'd start, you know, maybe you get a fire going and then you'd uh, go and and do your do your sit spot. Um, And so getting to know one place very well. Um, is really important because yeah, we all love nature. We, you know, the feeling of going hiking or going to visit um, Yosemite or Yellowstone. And uh, we all love the feeling that we get, right? But do we really know one place well and know the patterns of that one place and the birds that live there and nest there and the animals that pass by there and the tree that you lean against uh, and um, the changes through every season. And then usually when you first go and sit in that spot, um, your, your head might still be kind of running from uh, what you're going to do or what you did or any thoughts. And then you go into this sensory meditation where you're, the goal is to have no thought <laughs> and just be fully immersed in your senses, which, you know, it's, it's difficult to like not have a thought. <laughs> Sometimes right. we only experience little, you know, seconds here and there of no thought and so it takes a lot of practice to to get there. But basically, when you first start this practice, all of the life, the birds, everything just flees from you. Like you're this giant T-Rex coming through the forest, like threatening to kill everything. And you don't even know that you're, you're having that impact. And after doing this practice for days, weeks, months you get to the point where like, oh, I understand that my presence is causing this reaction. And sometimes people never, never get that. Like they'll, they'll go to their grave, never realizing that how much their presence is causing this sort of flee, this fight or flight response, right? Um, So understanding that is like the first step, like, whoa, I'm, you know, these, these birds are, are fleeing for their life uh, because of me. And then you slow down and you might go into that space even before, before you get out of your car, (laughs) um, before you walk down to your, your secret spot. And then there's that transition of you're causing less of a ripple. So you're actually seeing that the animals are fleeing from you before it was, it was happening so far in front of you that you never even saw it. (laughs) So then you're actually realizing, whoa, I'm causing this reaction. I see these birds fleeing from me. 
And then you look at, okay, how can I move without causing that massive disturbance? And the goal is essentially to, you know, you see a robin singing on a branch and you are able to walk under that branch without the robin breaking in its song. And that's not easy to do. (laughs) Um, I imagine there's parts of that. One of them might be how you move. But I imagine the other more subtle part of it is what's going on inside of you, not the exterior, but the, the interior part. Yeah. Yeah, it it really is. And that's where a lot of people have the meltdown. (laughs) And my time in wilderness awareness school, I saw that a lot, you know, people coming and, and realizing they've been a certain way their whole lives. And they're finally seeing that they've got these internal struggles and the life that they're living is not the one that's coming from their heart. And, you know, literally we saw people come and throw their day planners in the river, quit their job, divorce their husband. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, slow down a little bit. You don't quite have to make so many changes right at once. It's it's like an an ayahuasca ceremony without the ayahuasca. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that any of those drugs are a crutch that um, people maybe, maybe they feel like they need it, but you can get that same experience by direct connection with nature, you know, sort of without the risk of kind of not coming back. (laughs) Um, So tell, so you got this so good. There's a couple of stories in the book. I want you to relate if you can. One was about, having a deer walk so close by you, your fingers brushed her flank or something. Or what, were you, what were you doing then? And, and tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, I had my sit spot by where, where I lived in uh, Fall City, Washington, along the Snoqualmie River. And I would go out there and it was a, it was a meadow uh, next to a pond and there was um, a small group of deer that would, uh, would graze in that meadow. And uh, I watched those deer. I watched the, the bucks deer in the rut. I watched uh, when the fawns first came out. And uh, to the point where I wanted to be part of their group. I wanted to be accepted. So I started to move like a deer. I started to eat grass and I started to bed down where they would bed down. Um, and then I would leave my shirt there right next to their day beds so that they were used to my smell. And I did this for a long time. (laughs) I mean, this was, this was years of, uh, going to that school and doing that immersion. I mean, it was, it was my whole high school. 
Um, and so it finally got to the point where those deer just accepted me as, as one of them, or, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but they didn't see me as a threat. They didn't see me as, as a predator. And, uh, so I remember one morning I, I woke up really early and, uh, it was still dark and I, you know, just like had this drive in me to go down and be with the deer. And so I found this spot and I, I, I was ahead of them. So I, I beat them, I beat them to it <laughs> and to their early morning grazing. And so I just kind of stepped off of their trail and, um, I watched them as they came down the hill and it was that moment where they came so close. It was like we shared a breath and I was able to reach out and just brush the side of that deer. And, uh, that moment, it was sort of that pure connection. I didn't feel any separation between me and the deer and the earth and the air. (laughs) It was just this pure feeling of, you know, it's just, there's no words, you know, love being, you know, cherishing every moment being in the moment. Um, and you know, there's probably words in indigenous languages for this. There's probably many, many words, like there's many words for love, but there isn't like a direct translation to our word for love. Um, there's like those who you hold in your heart and, you know, there's, so I think our language falls short of describing so many of these experiences. Um, I think English is, I think English is a very limited language, you know, like I know in, I think it's in Japanese, there is one word that describes the sound of rain falling on a certain type of leaf on the first rain of spring or fall or something or other. And even, you know, like even with the horses, you know, when, if you're riding a horse and they get to where they're really relaxed while moving and they really stretch over their top line, they'll stretch down the <laughs> while they're going. There's a Dutch, there's a Dutch and a German word for that. Wow. It's, the, the, so word cool. is, the word is breezen and the, the word breezen means, you know, when you're riding your horse and they get really relaxed, but they're nice and forward, but they're relaxed and they stretch over the top line, their head goes down. And they kind of do that. That's one word. But yeah, so we don't, we, English <laughs> yeah. is quite a, uh, yeah, it's not a, it's, it's not a very descriptive language when it comes to, to things like that. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about. Yeah, no, there, no, it's fine. And I think, yeah, so many of those are just, it's just, you have to, you have to feel it, right? <laughs> you have to, you have to experience it yourself. And I think that, you know, that was my hope with, with writing this book is that others, you know, others would see themselves in my journey. And, and that's sort of the feedback I've gotten like, wow, yeah, that was, I, you know, I, I felt the same way. And I, I really felt like I was there and not sort of like, you know, oh, she did this. I wasn't able to do that. I can never do that. But really seeing that anyone can have access to that. Oh, <laughs> cutie. My border colleagues come to say hi. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then there was another. There was another part of the book where your wilderness awareness school 
had a competition with others and it was like a mm. stalking, tracking. What was, tell us about that because I thought that was a great story. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a scout camp in uh, northeastern Washington, sort of in a really large uh, wilderness area. And uh, it was where, you know, something that we would do every year uh, to test our skills. And um, it was put on by a different wilderness school and they would draw people in from from sort of all walks of life and who were there to, to really sort of challenge themselves and survival and awareness and uh, camouflage. And so there was sort of, you know, ex Navy SEALs and, um, you know, martial artists that, uh, you know, really, you know, were priding themselves and having that, that sort of inner, inner peace and quiet mind and uh, so the all and all adults. So it was like an adult thing. And we were the only, you know, kind of teenagers that that would show up. And uh, so we would go and it was a challenge where we would um, go out. I think they gave us a sack of potatoes uh, with a whole group. So there was like a, a team. We were teams. So uh, our group was a team and uh, we would head out on us and go in full survival. And it was also, um, we had to stay hidden the whole time. We couldn't let anyone else see us. And we were, it was like a big game of capture the flag. So every team, maybe say there was four teams had a flag. And so you were trying to be invisible the whole time and go into the team's camp and steal their flag, which of course you're guarding the flag you know, you had shifts of, of who was guarding the flag. And so, um, you have, you were also given a bag of marbles and every time someone saw you, um, the person that was seen had to give, give up one of their marbles. And so if you didn't have any marbles, then basically you were dead. And the person that had the most marbles was like the individual winner of, of that part of the game. You know, of course, there was also like stealing the flags and other things going on. But uh, so what, what I did the whole game was listen to the language of nature. And that was one thing that we had an advantage of everyone else because we had been immersing in bird language and understanding the different alarm calls of, of birds. And it's the same thing that I described as you have this ring, people have this ring of disturbance that they don't even realize <laughs> because they don't see it. And it literally goes out in front of you two minutes, like you can time it on your clock. <laughs> when you hear this particular sort of fleeing alarm from the birds of this you know, massive disturbance, you're like, oh, that's got to be a human. <laughs> um, and then you can sit on the trail and it, it takes quite a long time for that human to actually show up. Like you have to have some patience. It'll take a couple minutes. And so we would hear that, uh, and it would be the, um, the towies that would sort of pop up and, and sound their alarm. 
and you could see it sort of coming down the hill. So even though the person was in full camouflage and completely hidden from sight, uh, you know, maybe even belly crawling uh, through the brush and completely silent, you could hear the birds alarming at that person. And, you know, it, it, for us, it was like obvious, like, oh, that person's like intense and they're, they're stalking and they've got this like, oh, I'm, I'm invisible. I'm not going to be seen. And that's not how we moved around. We knew that like, you know, to be around birds, you never face them direct. You always kind of turn your body so that you're not threatening you, you know, you kind of move in arcs and you're not sort of like intent on one thing or another. You're just kind of being relaxed <laughs> and uh, there's not a care in the world. There's no destination. Uh, and so um, that's how I won the game was I listened to the language of nature and uh, I could see the trajectory of that person that thought they were invisible <laughs> by what the birds were saying. And I would go to that area where the birds were alarming and I would wait and then they would come, um, you know, I might be like hiding behind a tree or something and they would come close to me and I would just say, I see you. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, Free, like I have no idea how they would be seen, <laughs> and just the look on their face, like some some punk teenager is is right there behind a tree, like waiting for them, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and they'd have to give up their marbles. <laughs> I recall from the book, like this guy's like a Navy SEAL or something. You know, oh like, yeah, very much full of themselves. Yeah, <laughs> really, and so yeah, it's that there's that that energy that you bring that's your I wrote it down the ring of disturbance I love that it's your it's your yeah that I love that term is that something you guys used in in was ring of disturbance um I I think so something along those lines yeah yeah so a few years ago maybe last year I forget when it was I was reading something you know I got into one of them ping 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 things I read this and then went to Wikipedia and it was this and something else. And I was about, had to do with, must have to do with hunter gatherers, but it must have to do with tracking. And there was a, a guy in America who was like the guy to go to. And maybe his name was Thomas. I can't remember. Tom, Tom Brown, probably. Tom Brown. That's the guy. Well, yeah. I couldn't find anything on YouTube by him, but there was a young guy that was talking about this stuff that, this beginning tracking, stalking type mm -hmm. stuff. And there were two exercises that he talked about that I think you talked about in the book. And one of them is fox walking. Can you tell us about mm -hmm. fox walking? Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, probably fox walking and owl eyes. Owl and eyes. That was that, yeah. Yeah. So um, basically it's a like a walking meditation. So uh, and it's, it's, it's cool because, um, I work with a, a, a biomechanist, uh, Katie Bowman, who is all about how we move our bodies and how, you know, how we interact with, um, everything else with movement. And so the fox walking is very much a, um, a natural movement, 
pattern that is really uh, a healthy way to move because so much of our movement is like a falling forward or stomping our feet. And with fox walking, you're kind of reaching your foot out in front of you and being pulled forward. Uh, And you're not committing your weight. And there's some practical reasons for that because you don't, you know, if you're, if you're, um, if you are actually hunting, uh, you don't want to want to step on a stick and uh, make a lot of noise. So you're feeling with your foot and then pulling yourself forward. And um, so, so with fox walking, you are really slowing down enough to connect with the ground and connect with your body and how your body is aligned and how your body is in relationship with everything else around you. Uh, and then you're, you're even imagining that like a, you know, like a red Fox, they actually have hair growing in between their toes to silence their, uh, silence their movement. And that's why they can move so quietly. Um, uh, that sort of sound absorption. And then you go into these, this owl eyes. So if you've ever watched an owl, their eyes are sort of fixed in their heads and, and, uh, they're able to see from their perch, like the slight movement of a vole, uh, in the grass. And so when you're in owl eyes, um, and you're fox walking, you're able to detect like the slightest movement. And it also sort of sets you into that heart center place inside of you, uh, where you immediately go into that, that meditation state. So, uh, that's a great practice. So using the, the sit spot, um, of full sensory immersion, and then also, um, the fox walking and owl eyes. Uh, so the the video that I watched um, with the fox walking, there was a certain order that your foot landed in the ground. It was like heel outside, like your little toe, and then it rolled over to your big toe. Is that is that? Yeah, I mean, I think people like try to complicate things, and it's really pretty simple. <laughs> um, I think it's more just like you're you're feeling the ground, and yeah, maybe you're rolling your foot towards the inside, um, and then pulling yourself forward. Um, but no, mostly I set the ball of my foot down first, and then like commit my weight. Well, I'll take it from you because you're the winner of the marble game. So, <laughs> um, and then the the other exercise that I, I think you're referring to as allies. What this guy said to do was put your arms out beside you at shoulders mm, yep. height and raise your index finger and look straight ahead and adjust your vision until you can see both of your fingers at the same time. Is that a good way to to learn how to yeah. do allies? Yeah. So you, so you sort of look, look in front of you and pick a spot. Like, you know, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing a blade of grass and don't move your eyes from that spot and then put your hands next to your head. And without moving your eyes from that spot in front of you, you want to see both, uh, both side, both hands at the same time. And then it's the same with up above, like, you know, above and below you want to see. So you have this sphere up and down. of okay. vision. Mm. Yeah. So essentially you're just 
without like moving your eyes or moving your head, you're expanding that sphere of vision. Yeah. And, and, you know, these things, it's interesting when you were talking about your, your daughter going off and doing the thing and, and whatever it's, and you were saying that your kids, you know, could survive in the wild. I don't think this stuff's about having to survive in the wild unless we have the zombie apocalypse. But I think these doing these things are ways that we can reconnect with ourselves and live better lives in the current lives we are, are living. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's like we, we're not going to go and, and live live out and, and try to survive in the wilderness right now. I mean, first of all, there it, it would be a constant sort of starvation march <laughs> because um, our resources and our life on Earth has been so depleted that there isn't the abundance of food that there was when this land was tended by indigenous people. You know, you hear, and this is what makes me sad, just, just thinking about this is, uh, you know, I would always hear the stories of, you know, in the Pacific Northwest of the, um, in, from the indigenous people where the, the salmon ran so thick, like you could literally walk on their backs across the rivers or the rivers would turn red um, when they would be coming up, up river. And, and so you're lucky now to see one steelhead or, or one salmon um, coming up the, the rivers and the creeks. And it's sort of like the same words. And so that's what really um, back to this regenerative agriculture. And we're sort of back, you know, back to where we started, where uh, it's I, I understood through trying to go out and survive and struggle <laughs> and be starving. <laughs> my, you know, my son went on this um, longer survival trek and, uh, you know, I was talking to parents afterwards and like, oh yeah, you mean the starvation march? <laughs> they were sort of dropped off way up in the mountains and they had to, you know, walk probably 30 miles or something to get back to base camp, just navigating their own way. And they didn't bring any food. And it was like, you know, maybe they caught a squirrel here and there, or I think somebody brought some fish hooks. And so they, one night they had some tiny little fish and, you know, it was like the person in the front, I think this was like 10 kids and the person in the front, like, you, if there was five berries on the bush, <laughs> I was like, Oh, the last, the person in the back didn't get any, but you know, so, um, uh, yeah, it's, and, and that's just a result of our, um, disconnected relationships to tending to this, this wild. Um, we haven't been tending to our food source. And so, how would we expect ourselves to be able to go out and survive when everything has been so degenerated and depleted? Um, so how do we, how do we bring that back? How do we create healthy living uh, farms and ranches and ecosystems and uh, draw those salmon back in because they're still there and they're just waiting for the right conditions to multiply and to come back in, in abundance, you know, similar to the wolves. 
Warwick is happy to announce his first book, The Principles of Training, Understanding the Relationship Between You and Your Horse and Why Effective Training Works, is now available. After a lifetime of working with horses, Warwick has categorized every horse training method into 12 foundational principles. Understanding the intricacies of these principles will allow you to make the most educated horse training decisions on your horsemanship journey and is a must-read for any horse owner. Get your copy today on Amazon or get a personalized copy signed by Warwick on his website, warwickschiller.com. Yeah, so it's 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 kind of like, um, you know, how certain animals, you know, if there's a drought, they don't, they don't populate. But then when there's, you know, when the weather patterns change, then they do that. I think, you know, the animals are probably just waiting for us to bugger off on a spaceship to somewhere else. there's a there's a whole thing about that which, um, uh, you know go, going to mars it's like well, i you know i really love this planet I, I don't have any desire to go to another one <laughs> yeah i don't need to so you just mentioned wolves a second ago got me thinking tell us about tracking wolves in idaho for seven summers. yeah i mean that was that was incredible i you know i love the intermountain west and uh you know, I, I love the area that I live now, but um, I've been able to spend, uh, you know, a bit of time in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. And uh, being being in Idaho and following the wolves, uh, I, I think really taught me how to be a regenerative rancher. Uh, so the wolves... I, I, I followed them for days and days. And so we'd go and we'd set up camp next to, um, you know, a, a one, one pack. And so one summer there was a pack of 11 wolves and, uh, you know, we were doing both ecotourism. So bringing people out and teaching them how to track and also, um, providing research for, uh, you know, data for some of the research efforts that were going on at the time. Um, it was like right in the beginning of the reintroductory efforts. Um, and so just sort of providing that on the ground um, observations and, and data of what the wolves were doing, where they were going, what they were eating. Um, and so that required us to uh, spend long, long hours out with these packs and following the wolves. And uh, so one, you know, one particular experience was when I was, and, and we would go out at first light and, and look, cause they, they travel long distances. And so um, we would go out, you know, just when we would be able to see, and, you know, we'd be on, on this, the running boards of a pickup truck <laughs> driving um, the wilderness roads out there kind of leaning off to the side of the truck, looking for the tracks, like, you know, looking and, and looking out in front and waiting for them to sort of cross these roads. Cause it was, you know, it's like finding a needle in a haystack, literally. I mean, it's just the expanse is so huge. And so one time I was, you know, kind of leaning off, holding on to, um, you know, the inside uh, bar of the truck and, uh, and I was like, Oh, Saw, saw a track stop and so stop and the trackers would get out and like circle around and figure out you know where the wolf was going the size of the track and kind of look around the the general area 
And um, so I was dropped off on this fresh track and I had a radio and a water bottle and that that's, you know, whatever, maybe a knife in my pocket and a little tape measure um, to sort of measure the tracks and the scat as I, as I came across them in a little notebook. So I set off on the trail and it was a journey. I mean, it was incredible. And luckily the, the wolves, uh, you know, they'll follow the path of least resistance. So they were following the, um, the sheep trails and the sheep trails were, um, were there and uh they um so i would see the tracks and they would kind of border the edge of these meadows and i would see these like incredible uh incredible mountain meadows and come across uh you know elk and sandhill cranes and just I, I just felt so, you know, just so immersed and so alive, just out there on the trail of of the wolf, and uh, that I was like, I was like, oh, I am. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Basically, just be out here with the wolves, following them, experiencing what they experience, seeing what they see. And, uh, so it was hours of me following this, this alpha wolf because they'll go out and they'll mark their territory and they have very large territories. And so when they mark, when they mark, they go out and they mark their territory, it's, um, uh, it's sort of to, because they, they have this territory and they don't want another pack kind of intruding. And so then they'll eventually head back towards where the pack is. And so that's what I was, I was hoping is that I would get, I would be led to where, where they were. And so sure enough, I went up over this rise and it got to the point where I was so close behind this wolf. Um, like I must've just gotten the track when I got dropped off and I was kind of jogging a lot of the time following the the track of this wolf. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't stop and take breaks or anything. Um, and it got so, I got so close that there was like a light rain that came. And then a few minutes later, I saw the track and the track was on top of the light rain. So the wolf, the wolf had come mm. after the rain. So I knew I was really close. So I was like tracking, like when you're tracking, you're also tracking all these weather patterns to age that, that track, like, you know, you, and you're journaling the weather. When did it rain? When was it sunny? When was it windy? And so, uh, I was following and that, and that was that point where I just got that, energy coming up through my legs and feeling like, wow, I am so close to this wolf. And, um, I, I kind of paused there for a minute and just had this, like, I, I had this fear come up, which was really interesting because I was very, I was very fearless. Like I was very much a fearless teenager. I was the first one to jump off the bridge into the water and do the crazy stunt on my horse. And, um, 
you know, and, and, and I, I paid for it. I, I got a number of different, you know, a number of concussions in, in my youth, but I, you know, that didn't stop me from being completely fearless. And so this was an interesting feeling for me, like a being a, afraid. And I, you know, I'd never been afraid of, of predators. You know, I was in Washington and in, in bear country, in Alaska, in bear country. And I always felt like I had the tools to know how to be around predators and know how to protect myself. Um, and so that was really interesting for me. And it was a point in my life where I was like, oh, do I run from that? Or do I go into that uh, feeling? And so I chose to go into that feeling and it, I think it was more uh, looking back, I think it was more respect. Like I was entering into their sort of family sanctuary and I should not do that without being very thoughtful and very respectful and, and giving reverence to their, their home. And so many people don't, they don't even get to be able to see something like that. And so, uh, I got to the edge of where the forest met this incredibly beautiful meadow with this meandering stream running through it. And, um, I saw the wolf <laughs> and it was just the shadow on the edge of the tree line. And that moment was, it was like the, the gift, like that wolf was giving me the gift of the time that I spent all of that dirt time leading up to that, the years of looking at tracks and following footprints and immersing in nature. It was like, that was the moment that I'd been waiting for. <laughs> and so at that point I was like, okay, this is, like this day cannot get any more amazing. And I was exhausted uh, and hadn't eaten anything all day. And it was well into the afternoon. And um, so I went and I took my shoes off and I soaked my feet in the cold water and had a drink of water. And then I heard howling erupting all around me, like 360 degrees. I, I was in the middle of the meadow and I didn't see anything, but I heard all of this howling and, and little pups uh, barking and, and chiming in. And, in. and I was just looking around at this meadow and it was just full of, of life. And there wasn't any elk in the meadow, of course, but there was sign that the elk had been there. You know, there was still some saliva on the, on the, on the grasses and I could still see their fresh tracks and their poop and their wallow and their smell. You can kind of smell the elk when they've moved through an area. And so, um, and I was like, oh, I can't get any better than this, <laughs> right? So hearing all of the wolves, you know, seeing the wolf and then hearing all of the howling around me. And then I heard a raven calling. And, um, you know, ravens have this relationship with wolves uh, and often they'll follow uh, the packs to take advantage of the, um, the kills. 
And so, you know, I got up and I was just sort of at that point, there was there, there wasn't there's no thinking like I wasn't thinking of what I was doing. It's like my body was just just moving where my body was going to move. And so I got up and I walked towards the raven and in a place where the creek had slowed down and oxbowed, um, I stopped in my tracks and right there in front of me was this massive bull elk that was laying in this stream and it was just so visceral like the it was so fresh and the guts were were coming out right there and it was like I, I just, I just froze and I slowly backed away. And it was that moment that, because I, I had gone through, you know, becoming vegan and really protesting animal cruelty and all of these things. And then I saw death, like so, like such a large death, you know, you see, you know, also in that meadow, there was like uh, voles and moles that the pups had used as chew toys. And so you see a lot of like small deaths, but this was a big death. And it really hit me uh, to the point where I was like, I was kind of weak and I, I couldn't, I couldn't really function. I, I knew that I, I I needed to, like, this was a big, a big transition in my life. And um, I was raised vegetarian. And I think at that point, I, I still wasn't eating any meat. And, um, and, and right there, I just realized like, wow, that one death, right, that one bull elk that sort of sacrificed its life that the, the wolves had um, pulled out of that herd, like that is sustaining so much life is sustaining this pack. And that will then sustain the ecosystem and sustain thousands and millions and actually billions of life forms if you count all of the life that's in the soil. So it's like one one death is producing so much life. And um, so I think that's sort of the metaphor that I bring into cattle ranching because it's hard. I mean, it's been hard on me actually lately more so than before. I, I think again, I, I'm experiencing a, a shift in my life. I'm I'm getting into my 40s, <laughs> which is which is different for me than my 30s. And um, this is the season now that we're bringing groups of slaughter in on a weekly basis. So these are animals that we saw being born um, and raised them with so much love and so much care. And, you know, they have the most beautiful life. They have, you know, an incredible, incredible view, an incredible place to live. They're raised with their family group. And then, you know, we gather them and they willingly come into the corrals and we use like these low stock livestock um, handling low stress <laughs> livestock handling, and you know we're gentle with them. They're gentle with us, and then you know we load them into a cattle trailer, and it's like that moment where you step up on the railing, 
and you peek inside the holes and they look at you, it's, it's hard. And, um, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's been, it's been a challenge for me these last couple months as we've started again, cause we'll, we'll take a break during the winter and then we start back up again. And so I, I say a prayer and I think back to that elk <laughs> and I think about how much life and how that elk sacrificed its life. And it doesn't make it easier, um, I don't want to downplay that part of living is killing and I want to give reverence and pray that that life was very meaningful. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, that our going back to our roots as hunter gatherers, like, I don't think it ever gets easy. I don't think it ever should get easy that death. And I think that people have been so disconnected from that cycle of death that it's sort of like we create these false perceptions of what should die and what should live. And, um, without really knowing it, without really being, you know, I don't know if I'm explaining this right. Cause it's, it's sort of really fresh for me right now. Um, but you know, it's, it, it definitely brings a tear to my eye every time. And, and I think it should, I think it should be difficult. I think it's meant to be difficult. And I, I also remember, um, there's a group of San Bushmen in the Kalahari that uh, a friend of mine, a tracker that I spent a lot of time with actually was the one that would bring the BBC camera crews out, you know, when they would document this, um, this phenomenon of that there was only, there's only a couple of them and I'm not sure if they're still alive now, a couple of San Bushmen that were able to, to do the hunt by running. And it's like, that is the, pure instinctual meaning of hunter gatherer human being is to barefoot in the Kalahari desert, pick up on the track of a kudu and with a spear run after that kudu until the blood boils and that kudu collapses. And our blood doesn't boil. So that Bushman will go up to that kudu. And after it has collapsed from exhaustion, will spear that kudu and then sprinkle sand on top of the kudu and say words, say a blessing. And you can, you can just see it when you watch, um, watch these documentaries that, even for them, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's difficult. And even after they've, they've ran for miles and miles and miles all day in the hot beating sun, it, it, it never, it never gets easy. No. Um, so one of my podcast guests, actually I just did a podcast again with him recently named Rupert Isaacson. So Rupert spent a lot of time with the the Khoisan Bushman in uh, the Kalahari. But he was telling me a story about how they took him out hunting one day 
to show them how they used to hunt with the little bow and arrow, the tiny little bow and arrow they had. They can't hunt like that anymore, but they're not allowed to hunt like that anymore, but they took him out to show him how they were doing, and they were going to hunt a um, Gemsbach, yeah. I would say, <laughs> Hemsbach in South Africa. And they... He said, when you hunt a Hemsbach, you've got to be careful because they will they will know they're being hunted and they'll circle around behind you. But they tracked this Hemsbach for quite a long time but never actually laid eyes on him. They couldn't they couldn't get they didn't get close enough to see him. And they're tracking and tracking and tracking. And then they get to a spot to where he's pooped. And there's these two the 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 two bushmen and they, they said to they said to Rupert, they call him Ru. They said, ah, Rue, and they took the poop of the – so he's thinking they've got these tiny little bows that don't go very far. Mm, yeah. How are they going to hunt this Hemsbok? Yeah. Haven't seen him all day. Um, he takes the – he goes, ah, Rue, takes the poop mm-hmm. of the Hemsbok and puts it in the left hind footprint of the Hemsbok. Then he says to Rue, close your eyes. And so uh, Rupert closed his eyes and he said that, I don't know if it was a 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, and then there's a tap on his shoulder and the guy says, open your eyes. And Rupert opens his eyes and they're standing in front of them, side on with his shoulder presented to them, exactly one little bow's length away, one little arrow shooting's length away was the Hemsbok. Yeah. And the, the Bushman goes, and he, they didn't have a bow with them, but he just made the the sound of the the bow, mm. and the Hemsbok ran off. But it was it was kind of like whatever they whatever the, the, that thing is they did that the Hemsbok presents itself and goes, okay, I will sacrifice myself for the. And it's it's like the, things like that just amaze me. Like we don't know anything yeah. about anything. Yeah, it's it's so true. There's like <laughs> there's all of these realms that. Uh, We'll never know. And that's, there's so much beauty in that. There's so much beauty. Like there's never, there's so much beauty in the unknown. On the, on kind of on the track of what we're talking about then, tell me about your, what is your son's middle name? Londolozi. <laughs> so. Have you been to Boyd Vardy's place? Um, we've been to the Londolozi Lodge um, in, in Kruger. You have. Is and um, we've tracked yeah. with the Shangon there, and that's where my son's name came from. Yeah, right. So you know who Boyd Vardy is? No, I don't think so. You don't know who Boyd Vardy is? I mean, maybe I, I've heard his name. Remind me. Uh, he wrote a book called "The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life." Oh yes, okay, yep. He has a his place, his lodge, his his place is called Londolozi. Oh, okay. He's the uh, owner of Londolosi. See, yes. I, I I just worked with the trackers there. I didn't I didn't ever uh, meet the owner. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Yeah, so that's that's the, the oldest game lodge. It's the most incredible place. I mean, that's any that's the top of my list. If I were to able to go back to anywhere on the planet, it would be Londolosi. Mm. He's pod he did a podcast with Tim Ferris. Mm-hmm. The absolute best podcast i've ever listened to in my wow. entire life okay i'll have to listen to that <laughs> yeah yeah boyd yeah. vardy with with tim uh, with uh, on tim ferris's podcast and uh yeah so he wrote a book called the line tracker's guide to life and another book 
that I and it, you know it's funny your book Don again tracking the wisdom of the wild it's kind of very similar to where um, you know what nature can teach us about us yeah and especially absolutely. indigenous wisdom can teach us about mm-hmm. us you know so I've got to get to your questions and it's funny you know as you regular podcast listeners would know I give the my guests uh, a choice of 20, 20 questions to choose from and the one that people always choose you didn't choose which is <laughs> what is your relationship like with fear but you answered it anyway because yeah. you told me the story about the wolf and you're like, okay, do I back off or do I go forward? So, yeah, the, the, the question is, what is your relationship like with fear? Do you move towards it or away from it? And you already answered that one. so that was <laughs> I forgot that was a question. <laughs> um, so your first question you chose was, if you could spread a message throughout the world, one that people would listen to, what would it be? Or your favorite quote or both? Yeah, so I would say that... Uh, to really connect with nature, to find your true purpose and and live that purpose and understand that the reality around us is not the one that we've necessarily chosen and we can create our own beautiful reality. And uh, that goes back to connecting to your heart and connecting with nature. Boom, right there. That's, that's, that's all you guys need to know right there. Uh, next question. What's the most worthwhile thing you've, and you quite possibly answered this one, but what's the most worthwhile thing you've put your time into, something that changed the course of your life? Um, I would say getting dirty. <laughs> dirt, that dirt time. Just, you know, I spent a lot of time covered in a lot of dirt and, uh, you know, horse hair and, (laughs) and really, uh, immersing myself in the smells of the decomposing, um, fungal, uh, duff of the Pacific Northwest, um, forest. And I think that is the, the, the most important thing that I've done is had that connection to dirt. And I didn't realize at the time that it's so healthy for you too, because when you connect to the soil, it's improving your gut microbiome. When you're around animals, it's um, like, there's all these cool studies about the Amish that were raised with animals. They are, you know, they don't have allergies They're They have a healthier immune system. So I think, um, you know, get dirty and uh, be healthy and happier as a result. Play with the mycelium. Um, yeah. You know, I read something recently that there is something in, and you said it's good for your gut biome, but there's something in soil that is actually good for our mental health. Yeah, absolutely. There's that, a microbe. There's an exchange that, of some, yes. Yes. Yeah. That increases serotonin in your brain. Yes. Yes. Yep. Increases serotonin, mm-hmm. getting your hands yeah. in the dirt. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I read, read that re- recently. Uh, the next question was, what advice would you give to people uh, in about to who want to get into your profession? But first, you've got to tell me, what is your profession? Are you a wolf tracker? Are you a <laughs> farmer? Are you an author? Which well, profession are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. I mean, I... I gain my income from both agriculture and building regenerative farms um, for other people. Like right now I'm doing some 
um, global land regeneration for a um, blockchain entertainment company. Uh, so it's like you just never know what's going to fall in your lap and which direction it's going to take. And this this new direction is so exciting. I'm working with a women's agroforestry collective in Costa Rica that's working with indigenous women and children and it's just it's just amazing and it's fun and um yeah i love it so um i would say the advice would be don't judge the present from the past and be resilient to what nature brings and i had a very humbling experience this past uh winter with that and got, you know, got kind of knock, knocked back a bit of like, wow, we really do not know what is going to be coming our way in the next few years, next several years, you know, with, with the amount of massive wildfires to floods, to drought, to, you know, everything we're experiencing, we really cannot base our actions on what we've done in the past. We really need to be present in the moment and resilient and act um, accordingly and be adaptive. Yeah, I think things are changing, so we need to be quite adaptive. Uh, Where do you go to recharge or to find motivation? Yeah, for me, it's um, movement. So I do, I'm right here on the coast and I walk um, from, from my house. First thing in the morning, I usually carry my cup of tea and I'm down on the beach and walking the, uh, you know, private stretch of beach all by myself, um, in the mornings. And that's where I gain my creativity and my ideas. And, you know, I'm not someone that's like quick to respond or quick to act. I like to think things through and like connect to the source and feel the energy before I take an action. Like I need to feel it first. (laughs) And that's how I do it is I go and I spend time alone and I move and I, I walk on the beach. And private beach. That's pretty cool. What is one common myth about your profession that you'd like to debunk? Um, I think it was like understanding those cycles of life, um, and death. Uh, and so we can all be in relationship with it and we are in relationship with death, whether we like it or not, and whether we know it or not, we are, um, are, and, and how we relate to that is, is important. So, um, being connected and in relationship and aware of that is, is very key and not just passing judgment of, you know, the, the sort of evil meat eaters or, or cattle rancher, like really understanding it and sitting across the table from the farmer or the rancher, which is what I, you know, looking back, I should have done right from the beginning. <laughs> well, no, you shouldn't have done because that's, wasn't your journey, was it? True. You, that's you, right. You have, <laughs> no regrets, you, have a deeper but... under, you have a deeper understanding of the whole thing now because you went down one path for quite a long time and then you change paths. Whereas yeah. if you hadn't gone down that path for that long, you might not have as broad a view as you do. Absolutely. Right yeah. And uh, the last question you chose, what does it mean to be a leader? What does leadership, followership look like to you? Yeah, I thought about this one for a while and um, 
I think really what it means to me is to inspire that spark in others for them to feel motivated to fulfill their purpose. So um, like I've, I've done a lot of public speaking and um, there was one time in particular, you know, there's a place up in San Francisco in the Presidio that uh, is a beautiful place to, to speak. And I was presenting at a, like a regenerative business conference and just showing a lot of beautiful pictures of kids on horses and cattle grazing lush grass and interactions with, with nature and our food and there was a woman in the audience and she recently came up to me. This was probably eight years ago. And I just um, saw her a couple weeks ago at this um, Google food lab that I'm a part of with all of these sort of, um, you know, global uh, food food brands that come together and, and try to kind of hash things out. And uh, so she was presenting on a company that she started because she heard me speak eight years ago. And it was so successful, her company. Um, it was a snack, a snack company. And she was working to transition farms to regenerative and provide better livelihoods for farmers by paying a premium, helping them to um, do climate-friendly practices. And she produced this incredibly successful snack brand which she then sold to Patagonia Provisions. And she came up to me after her presentation about it and realized I was in the audience on the other side and she was in tears. And she said, Donica, I, I just want you to know that this was all because of you. I changed the course of my life because I heard you speak at that conference in San Francisco. <laughs> So, That's pretty special, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was really special. That's, yeah. Wow. It's almost, yeah. I could say a lot about that. I could, I could talk to you all day. You, I find you. <laughs> well, you got to come um, up and visit sometime or I'll, I'll, I'll come, come down and visit. visit you. It's like your, your old stomping oh. grounds. <laughs> yes. Yes. My old stomping grounds up there. Yeah. I, we lived up right up there right when I got married 29 years ago. Okay. Yeah. I, I moved here about 20 years ago. 22, maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, so how can people find out more about you and your, uh, where can they find your book? Yeah. So you can find my book anywhere books are sold. Uh, Dawn Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild or Wolf Girl, which is the young adult version. Uh, and, um, you know, I wrote that you know, sort of because there's, it's tough being a young adult or a kid in these times. And it's tough being a parent of kids during this time. I mean, you know, with technology and the draw of smartphones, it's, it's a challenge. So Wolf Girl is kind of gives the steps of those youth that are looking for something or maybe angry um, because they see that the um, our generation didn't do enough for them, you know, in terms of the the climate crisis. And so, you know, we saw a lot of those activists going to the streets and standing up and protesting. But this is a book that shows them that they can really look to nature to find those solutions. And, um, you know, we put a lot of faith into those next generations and want to give them as many tools as possible. 
So yeah. And I'm on Instagram. Um, so that's probably a good way if you want to message me through, through Instagram or my, uh, company website, which is markygardfamily.com, um, or just Google Marky Guard family grass fed. Um, we do sell, uh, meat, uh, grass fed meat in the, um, San Francisco Bay area. Uh, and you can join our membership if you're a local listener and come out to a ranch day. We have a ranch day coming up pretty soon. So, so give us a shout out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure and an honor having you on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, been incredible. And the timing is perfect because I have 1% battery life. It was like totally meant to be. (laughs) It was, it was meant to be Uh, a few (laughs) listeners at home. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the journey on podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.